Hey there, church family. Thanks again for joining us for today's uh, lesson. We continue in our study through the book of Job. And uh, today we come and we're going to focus on chapter 19. And so as we uh, get into this, let's begin our lesson today with a word of prayer. Lord God, thank you for how you speak to us and reveal yourself to us through your word. And as we approach your word now, we do so with humility. Lord, we understand that it's only by the power of your spirit that we are able to discern spiritual things. So we recognize this is more than a, a practical study of words on a page. Lord, we need your help and we need the Spirit's work in our life to enlighten these truths to our souls so that we can know you and so that our lives can reflect who you are so that we can walk in close intimacy with you. And so, Father, today as we continue to read this story and gain insights into this situation with Job and his life, would you teach us about yourself? Would you teach us about the nature of our sufferings? And ultimately, would you help us to trust in you more? And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the last time that we were together, we focused on chapters 3 through 14. And as we mentioned at that point in the book of Job, there is a series of three debates where Job's friends take turns giving their opinion, expressing their theology about why these bad things have happened in the life of Job. And so last week we looked at that first cycle of debates. This week we are going to address a passage and look at a passage specifically that comes on the heels of that second round of debates. And so we're not going to go into as much detail about the debates um, in this session as we did the last session, I would encourage you, maybe in your daily Bible reading, to go back and start in chapter 15 and read through. I think what you will find is that the debates are just more of the same. It's Job's friends coming to him a second time, not with compassion, not with a genuine care for their friend, but with these theological assumptions that they're making as to why these bad things are happening in the life of Job. And of course, as we mentioned last week, their theology was not all wrong. Sometimes bad things are sent by God to judge people for their sin. And that is totally true biblically. We see that in the Old Testament. We see that in the New Testament. The problem as it relates to Job, and we can recognize this as the reader, is we know that that was not the case for Job. They applied a theological structure to a situation that was not appropriate because we know that Job was not suffering because of his sin. He was suffering simply because God allowed him to suffer. God gave permission to Satan to do these things 
in the life of Job. And so through these debates, we see this tension between his friends who are saying, if you would just get right with God, these things would go away or wouldn't have happened in the first place. And Job responding with, I don't know anything that I've done wrong. And it's interesting because as we hear Job's responses to his friends, we can see in him a hint of trying to justify himself. We can also see a hint of him blaming God and sort of tiptoeing into the waters of of cursing God because God is persecuting him. And so we'll see some of that today coming out in Job's um, response when we're going to look at chapter 19. But I wanted to start in talking uh, sort of about where we left off last time in Job 14. So we ended that first cycle of debate and Job really lands on this truth. Even if I die, I'll be resurrected one day. Like I, death is not all that there is. So even if the worst thing happens to me, that can happen to a human being, and I lose my life, there is still hope. And so we looked at that last week. Job ends that first cycle of debates, and although there is despair in his voice, he is still hoping in God. And that's an important truth for us as believers now, right? When we talk about our salvation, we can view our salvation in three parts, if you will. The first part is justification. For believers, this is what's happened in the past when we have been made right with God through Christ. This happens, we are justified at the moment of our conversion. So Paul talks about that in the book of Romans. We are justified by faith alone in Christ Alone. So we talk about justification related to salvation as something that has happened for believers in the past. The second part of this view is called sanctification. This is what's happening in the lives of believers now. We are in this constant process of becoming more like Christ. We are becoming, uh, um, we are being made into his image. And this is a process that will last our entire lifetime as Christians. So justification has happened in the past. Sanctification has happened in the present. And we look forward in the future to the third part of salvation that we call glorification. This is the time when we will no longer deal with our sin nature we will have glorified bodies with Christ that are not um, being corrupted and being decayed by sin's curse. Uh, one passage of scripture that talks about this idea is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Let me read them. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, there's the past, bringing salvation for all people, Ready? Here's the present, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives 
in the present age, their sanctification. And then verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. There's the future. There's glorification. And so although Job wouldn't put it in these terms, we see him processing his suffering through this lens that one day in the future, there is true hope to be held on to. There is certainty that in the life to come, we will not have to deal with suffering. We will not have to deal with pain. And this is huge for those of us who are going through periods of suffering or those who are ministering to those who are suffering now. There is a time coming, a long time. The Bible says there is eternity ahead of us where we will not deal with the presence of sin or the curse of sin. And therefore, we will no longer deal with suffering. And that's something to rejoice about. But that's really the one of the key themes here of the book of Job. There's lots of questions that arise. How does suffering work? Right? There's also the question of the problem of evil. And we've heard people talk about this before, but this idea that if God is good and God is sovereign over all things, then how can we explain the existence of evil in the world or in our lives? If God is good and is in control of all things, why would he allow bad things to happen to his people. And this is one of the themes that we see Job wrestling with, that we seek his friends not understanding. And it, it's important for us to understand that God's ways are mysterious, but there is a role for faith and trust in God. Remember, the book of Job is classified by biblical scholars as wisdom literature. And it's obviously different from the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Proverbs because it's narrative in form, right? We are reading about a person's life. It's not, hey, if you do this, you'll find wisdom like the book of Proverbs. And yet it is wisdom literature because here is the question, what is the nature of wisdom and where can it be found? And I think if we were to boil down all of the truth and the message, the key theme of the book of Job, here's probably where we would land. We can trust God. I mean, his ways are not our ways. From a human perspective, suffering makes no sense. From a human perspective, it's hard for us to wrestle how bad things can be good things. But that's not a problem for God. In fact, it caused me to to be reminded of one of the most famous passages in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Here's the problem that's existing in the book of Job. 
the characters are trying to understand what is happening to Job in human terms. They're leaning on their own understanding instead of simply trusting that God is sovereign and has purpose even in the midst of innocent people suffering bad things as we see in the book of Job. So now let's turn to our passage in Job chapter 19. Job becomes, even in the midst of friends who are not good ones and who are attempting to place blame, he at times reminds himself of these truths that God can be trusted. And so let's look through this passage and see what we have. Let's start in chapter 19, right here at the beginning. So chapter 19, verse 1, it says, then Job answered. So once again, remember, this is after the second round of his friends, all three of them, talking to him and telling him that he should repent and how bad of a person he is to Uh, receive God's justice on his life in this way, Job answers them and says, verse 2, how long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These 10 times you have cast reproach upon me, are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I've erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. I mean, Job is is asking his friends to lay off, right? I mean, look, I've heard you. I understand. If I've done something wrong, it's on me. I've got your message loud and clear, and yet Job still isn't accepting his friend's explanation about why this suffering has been put into place. In fact, in verse 6, he says, know then that God has put me in the wrong. And I mean, at this point, Job is trying to, once again, help his friends understand, this is not something that I did. This is something that God did. Now, I don't know about you, but that can be hard for me when we think about suffering in our lives to say, this is something that God did. I mean, if we went back to chapter 14, even chapter 13, Job says it like this, though you slay me, still I will praise you. I mean, Job has a clear understanding where the source of this suffering is coming from. He understands the sovereignty of God, that God either causes or allows everything that happens in our lives, everything that happens in the world. This is the definition of God's sovereignty. And so for Job, we see his theological um, understanding here. Guys, listen, no, God has put me in the wrong. God has caused or allowed this suffering to come into my life. And then uh, let's go down to verse 19 and look specifically about um, 
what he says to God and and uh, to his friends. Verse 19, all my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. I mean, Job feels like, and I believe rightly so, that the people that he has loved and were supposed to love him, instead of doing so, they've turned their back on him. They are now attacking him. He says his intimate friends are abhorring him. And you can sense here this loneliness in the middle of the suffering, right? And this is what we want to be careful of when we're ministering to someone who is suffering. I don't know if you can relate to a period of your life where maybe you were struggling. Maybe other people around you didn't even know about your struggle, but you found yourself in a position where you felt alone, where maybe you felt as though there was no one around you who could help you or could who could come alongside you or those and that's a very desperate feeling right this is one of the reasons that the scriptures talk so much about our role as brothers and sisters in Christ to care for one another that we are to weep with those who weep that we are to comfort those who are in affliction because the Lord knows that we were not made for this type of loneliness. And yet, this is exactly where Job finds himself. Look in verse 20. He talks about his condition. He says, My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. I mean, things are desperate here. Some biblical scholars believe that Job was actually expressing his physical condition, that maybe in some way Job here was emaciated and that his skin was literally draped over his bones and there was no meat there. Who knows if that was literal or if this is... Job speaking to the condition of his life at this point. Either way, you can sense the desperation. Job is crying out in desperation. He says, and we use this terminology, the end of verse 20, I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. He's saying, I am barely hanging on here. Right? I mean, I don't know if I can move on. And yeah, I think here's what we have to understand, right? Sometimes in the sovereignty of God, he takes us to the point of despair so that he can pull us out and rescue us and make us into what he wants us to be. What an incredible truth that even at the worst moments of our life, God has a plan. God has a purpose. There is purpose in all of this. And it's it's my belief in reading the text here that God has Job exactly where he wants him, crying out in desperation because look at what he says in verse 21. Have mercy on me. I remember in the Gospels, in the book of Luke, right? You have the publican 
who comes and says, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Like this is the cry that God requires of any of us who come to him recognizing who he is and recognizing who we are. The only thing we can cry out is for mercy. We certainly don't want justice, right? We want mercy. And so we see this here um, for Job. He's saying, have mercy on me. Have mercy. He repeats it. Have mercy on me. He even calls out to his friends. Oh, my friends, you all have mercy on me. For the hand of God has touched me. So Job appeals here to his friends for compassion. Just as we are to appeal to God, God, be compassionate upon us. Look on our weakness. Look at our brokenness and have compassion on us. Job is asking his friends to be compassionate in his life. Um, He goes on in verse 22, why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? In other words, Job is saying, enough is enough. I don't need more. you've, You've told me, you've put me in my place. You've given me the explanation. What I need for you is to show compassion in my life. And then he goes on in verse 23 and makes an ironic statement. In verse 23, he says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. I mean, Job in his desperation is saying, if if these things could be put down in a book, people would understand how desperate my situation is. Now, Job wouldn't have known that the Bible would come to be and these things would actually be written down for our benefit. And so we see some of the grace of God in this that Job is saying, maybe somebody could learn from me. Maybe somebody could learn that this theology that only bad things happen to bad people is not accurate if they were written in a book, and now we get to see it. We get to read about this and understand that God has a purpose for suffering even in those who are walking with him, blameless even as Job was. He says, oh, in verse 24, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. And now, In verse 25, we get to the most notable passage of Scripture in the entire book of Job. This is sort of the, the, not the climactic point of the story, but certainly theologically the most important truth that we find throughout this narrative. When in verse 25, Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives And at last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, 
whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. For I know that my Redeemer lives. I mean, we sing songs with this as a lyric because this theological truth is so important for for all of us who are followers of Christ. Here's the question for us. Do we know that our Redeemer lives? Now let's backtrack a little bit. I want to I want to point something out to you that's not as apparent to us as certainly it would have been in the life of Job. So in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew culture, they had this concept called the kinsman redeemer. And we see this at play in the narrative that we find in the book of Ruth, right? That Ruth's husband had died and her father-in-law had died. So she and her mother-in-law move so that they can find maybe favor in someone's life to take care of them. As you probably know, widows in that culture were um, desperate for help. And so in the Hebrew culture, they had this idea that if a if a man died, that his family members would redeem their widow by marrying them so that they could provide for their needs. And so they called this concept the kinsman redeemer. We see this partly in God redeeming his people in the book of Exodus. Remember, his people are slaves in Egypt. And at that point, God is the redeemer of his people. He calls them out of Egyptian slavery and delivers them from that bondage. And yet in the books of Leviticus and in the book, like we said, of Ruth, we see this idea that it also relates to property or family, this idea of the kinsman redeemer. And so for the nation of Israel, they understood that God, Yahweh, was their redeemer. He was the one who promised to defend them and to vindicate them and to care for them in this way. So he is both the father and the the deliverer. And there are numerous instances in the Old Testament where the nation of Israel appeals to God as the rescuer, the redeemer of the weak and the needy, and ultimately the preserver of the nation of Israel itself. Now, fast forward into the New Testament. We know that all of that was simply a foreshadow of the one who would come that would offer redemption once and for all for the sins of God's people. We learn that Christ is the true kinsman redeemer. Because according to Hebrews chapter 2, he is our brother. And as such, he fulfills this role. He is our kinsman. And he redeems us because of our great need, the one that only he could satisfy. 
And so certainly for Job, he wouldn't have had this full understanding of the true kinsman redeemer who would come in Christ and exactly what that would look like. But here in verse 25, when he says, for I know that my redeemer lives, he understands that God is the ultimate source of redemption in his life, that he can look to God to vindicate him even in the midst of this suffering that he's going through. And this is the truth that he holds on to. He holds on to this. And it's interesting because in verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives. In some translations, it says, for this one thing that I know, right? I mean, he's holding on to this one truth that if my Redeemer lives, there is hope for vindication even in the midst of difficult things. And look, for us in 2021, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of things that we will go through that don't seem to make much sense in our life, we can hold on to this same truth. Our Redeemer lives. In His resurrection, He lives. In His ability to vindicate His people, He lives. In His ability one day to return and to free us from the curse of sin, He lives. And that is a truth that we can hold on to in the midst of difficult days. What an incredible passage of Scripture. For I know that my Redeemer lives. Let's go on and look in verses 28 and 29 to end the chapter. He goes back and he says, If you say how we will pursue him. Again, now he's talking to his friends again. And the root of the matter is found in him. Look what he says in verse 29. Be afraid of the sword. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. This echoes what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Be careful to point out the speck that is in your brother's eye while you have a log coming out of your own eye. What Job is saying here is, look, you can look at me and you can say, You did these things, therefore you deserve God's judgment on your life and these things that you're suffering. You can say that and that's true. However, if that's what you're going to go on, be ready because you're guilty as well, right? And so it's important for us to understand these truths that a person who is in the midst of suffering, number one, needs to be reminded of the hope that can only be found in Christ. Our Redeemer lives. We serve a God who's able to vindicate and to have purpose in the midst of our suffering, that no suffering that we encounter is without purpose in the eyes of God. And secondly, we can understand that there is a huge role for us to be compassionate for those who are suffering. Let me give you a real life example at this point. Um, Some of you uh, 
uh, may be interested and maybe have worked in what we call crisis pregnancy centers. And a part of what those centers do is they try to help ladies understand the reality of human life, the value of human life, and that abortion is not the way forward. However, another part of those centers really has to do with caring for ladies and men who've been in relationships where they've already had abortions. And so here's the question for us. What is our response to a person who's already engaged in an abortion? Well, on one hand, we would say they have sinned against God. That's true. Abortion is sin. And what they need to do is repent from that sin and ask God to forgive them. Absolutely. But here's the problem. We cannot stop there. Yes, those things are true, but we cannot approach these instances with this cold-hearted theology that simplifies everything to, if you will just repent and um, ask God to forgive you, everything will be better. No, that that's not compassionate because what is the reality for some of these people? Well, they've grown up in generational sin. They've grown up not understanding the reality of these things. They've made these decisions maybe because they've been victims of abuse or they've been in these relationships that they felt trapped. And so do they need to repent? Yes. Do they need to understand the gravity of the decisions that they've made? Yes. But do they also need someone to come alongside them with compassionate care to love them and walk with them through these difficult things that they've experienced? Absolutely. Now, this is not a direct application from the book of Job because Job wasn't guilty of any sin. But I just point that out to say hard-nosed theology isn't the best way to handle and to help people. It has to be compassionate theology. Theology that stands true and stands firm on the reality of truth and scripture, the reality of sin, the necessity of repentance, the importance of confession, and yet compassion for others, loving them, caring for them, taking time to walk with them through life. We can learn a little bit about caring for people from this instance with the book of Job. Well, the story doesn't end there. In fact, it goes on quite a bit longer, and we'll have to take that up Um, in our next meeting together. But thanks for joining us today. And we pray that this word of God would be alive and active and that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only.